You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon, Episode 36, Questions and Answers. Thanks for joining me. I'd like to start out by thanking everyone who submitted a question. I was worried we wouldn't get enough good ones to turn it into a full show, but as it turns out, I've been flooded with too much good material, and been forced to make some tough decisions about which ones to answer. We also got a lot of people asking about the same topics, which I wasn't expecting. I've combined some questions where I could. There were two popular question subjects that I'm not going to address in this episode, and I'll tell you why. The first is, unfortunately, the single most popular topic, Napoleon's family. I guess a lot of you noticed it's been a while since we heard from the rest of the Bonapartes. That's because I've got a few episodes planned for the near future devoted entirely to this topic. I feel bad skipping it because, as far as I can tell, this was the subject of every question we got from a female listener or from outside the Western world. But trust me, it's coming soon, and I think it'll be worth the wait. The second popular topic I'm ducking in this show is Corsica. Pasquale Paoli has turned out to be a fan favorite, and I'm glad because he's one of my favorite characters from this story as well, and I think he's criminally unknown. I've been working on and off on a side project specifically about what happened on Corsica after the Bonapartes went into exile. I have a lot on my plate right now, so I have no idea when it will be ready or even what form it will ultimately take, but take heart. Something big is in the works. We're playing it a bit more fast and loose this episode than I normally do. A little less scripting, a little more improvisation. We'll see how it goes. Anyway, let's get to the questions. The first few are on military subjects. Dan Patterson asked, What was the typical force composed of? Ratio of horse, cannon, infantry, command staff, etc. The organization of the French army changed and evolved over the course of the War of the First Coalition, and will continue to do so as our story moves on, so I'll focus on the period of the First Italian Campaign. We'll start with the infantry, who formed the majority of every army of the period. In the spring of 1796, the Army of Italy was around 90% infantry. The basic unit of infantry was the demi-brigade, each composed of three battalions of just over 1,000 men each. Earlier in the war, this had been one battalion of veterans from the old Royal Army and two battalions of patriotic volunteers or National Guardsmen, but by 1796, that distinction had mostly vanished. Demi-brigades were commanded by a chef de brigade, literally a chief of brigade, 
which I've chosen to translate as the more familiar English term, Brigadier General. Each had a headquarters staff of about 25 officers and men at his disposal. There were also around a dozen miscellaneous support staff, musicians, a quartermaster, a surgeon, and every demi-brigade had both a chief cobbler and a chief tailor. Regular line demi-brigades also had an artillery company of just under 100 men and 4-6 to six light cannon. Light demi-brigades had no artillery support. So that all adds up to a little over 3,000 officers and men. However, as we've seen time and again, the way things were laid out on paper at the War Ministry in Paris was often radically different from the way things worked at the front. In practice, the typical revolutionary demi-brigade on campaign had closer to half its paper strength, around 1,500 men. Between attrition from combat, disease, desertion, and the slowness of replacements from France, the number of men fit for duty might even drop below a 1,000. Cavalry units were even less uniform than infantry units. Cavalry organization was still a holdover from the old Royal Army. The basic mounted unit was the regiment, usually subdivided into three or four squadrons. On paper, many cavalry regiments were supposed to include well over a thousand men, but in practice most numbered a few hundred. Cavalry were hit twice as hard by attrition as infantry, not only did they have to worry about their troopers getting sick, injured, or killed, there were also the horses to worry about. You might think, it was the 18th century, there must have been horses everywhere. And of course that's true. But the vast majority of horses in Europe were unsuitable as military remounts. A cavalry horse needed specific physical characteristics and personality traits, which were only present in a few specific breeds. And just like a man, a horse required extensive training before it was ready for the battlefield. Horses also need feed and regular reshoeing, adding a logistical burden to cavalry units that infantry didn't have to worry about. With all those challenges, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the average revolutionary army didn't include very much cavalry, typically around 10% of the total strength. So, around 90% infantry and 10% cavalry doesn't leave very much for the artillery. There are two reasons for that. First, the Republic was chronically short on cannon. It was chronically short on almost every type of military equipment, but the shortfalls hit the artillery harder than any other branch of service. Simply put, cannons are very expensive. Second, artillery regiments were usually broken up into companies small units of under 100 men, with about half a dozen cannon. Many artillery companies fought attached to infantry or cavalry units, and so they get countered in their strength. So that takes care of the three branches of service. But as I'm sure you've noticed, there was an intermediary unit of organization between the regiments and demi-brigades and the army. Divisions. On paper, a standard army division in the Republican forces was composed of four demi-brigades of infantry, plus a few companies of artillery that were kept independent from the demi-brigades, to be used at the commander's discretion, totaling roughly 12,000 men and 40 cannon, on paper. But as we've seen time and again, there was no uniformity to the size and composition of a division during this period of time. In practice, a division meant little more than any body of men commanded by an officer of the rank of general of division. During the first Italian campaign, Napoleon moved his demi-brigades around as needed between divisions, 
and other army commanders did the same. A division might number only a few thousand men, or it might balloon to well over its official size. This whole concept of an intermediate unit between the basic unit of maneuver and the army commander was new, and during the War of the First Coalition, the French were still experimenting with it. Next question. Matt DeLuca asked, Given that the Gribeval system standardized the manufacture of cannon with which French artillery was equipped, what did the French army do with cannons they captured? Were they refitted, or were they used as is? Every army had at least one mobile workshop for artillery. 18th century cannons were temperamental, and could be dangerous to the gunners if not cared for properly, so these guys were well-equipped and highly skilled. The workshops were responsible for making captured enemy guns fit for use in the field. Mounting a captured gun on a French carriage was simple, but the barrel could be tricky. It was usually possible to change the barrel of a gun to fit the standard-sized French Gribeval shot. This process is called reboring. Napoleonic artillery was smooth-bore, not rifled, so reboring was relatively straightforward, although it took time and care. If reboring wasn't possible, the workshop could also cast their own non-standard shot and gunpowder charges to fit the barrel of a captured gun. Unless the artillerymen were already familiar with the model, it might take a little trial and error to find the right ratios, which could be dangerous. However, French commanders did not always find it desirable to convert enemy artillery. To take one example, during the First Italian Campaign, Austrian and Piedmontese mountain cannons were prized by the Army of Italy. These were guns specially manufactured for Alpine warfare. They were light and could easily be disassembled into much smaller pieces than a standard Gribeval gun, enabling them to be carried on the backs of mules or horses, rather than dragged in a cumbersome carriage. This meant they could traverse rough terrain or narrow mountain paths where regular artillery couldn't go. Up in the Alps, mountain cannons were worth their weight in gold, and when they fell into French hands, they were kept intact. To take another example, through his experiences with captured enemy artillery, Napoleon came to appreciate the merits of the six-pounder gun. Six-pounders were not a standard part of the Gribeval arsenal, but they were a mainstay of both the Austrian and Prussian artillery. Napoleon used these captured six-pounders in the field with their original bore, and eventually came to prefer them to the standard Gribeval eight-pounder. They were lighter and easier to manage without sacrificing too much in firepower. And I'm sure with the exigencies of war, you could find all kinds of non-standard, jerry-rigged pieces of artillery in the French army. Next question. Twitter user Lord of the TVG asked... How long was military enlistment by the time of the Italian campaign? I imagine it was pretty chaotic for much of the revolution, but did they have a system in place that gave people an idea of how long they or a family member might be away in the army? Well, the answer here might be more bleak than you'd expect, especially if you're American, because our traditions of military service are very different. At the beginning of the period, the term of service in the British Army was 21 years. This was reduced to seven years in 1806, to encourage volunteers. Russian soldiers served for 25 years, so long that supposedly rural villages held a funeral when a local man was conscripted. 
but even they had it better than the poor Prussian soldiers, who served for life. During the First Italian Campaign, soldiers in the Austrian army also served for life. In 1802, Archduke Charles completely reformed the Austrian army, and this was changed to 10 years for the infantry, 12 for the cavalry, and 14 for artillery and engineers. We've talked a lot about how soldiers in the old regime were kind of a class apart from the rest of society. Well, if you enlist soldiers for 21 years, or for life, that's bound to happen. In times of war, all of the old regime powers also employed a lot of militia and volunteer units, most of whom were pledged to serve for the duration of the conflict. In France, the revolutionaries had a lot of big ideas about creating an army of citizen soldiers, rather than abused peasant conscripts. And so, the term of service in the Republican army was just four years, comparable to most modern militaries. But there was a pretty big catch. That lenient term of service was superseded by the declaration of the Levee en masse in 1793, which legally placed all young men in France at the disposal of the military for the duration of the national emergency. So no, these men had no idea when they might return to their families. The only way to avoid fighting for the duration was death or disability. That is, unless they took matters into their own hands and deserted which, perhaps unsurprisingly given the circumstances, many did. It was not unheard of for 10% of a unit's strength to desert annually. According to one study, 23% of British men who joined the army between 1774 and 1780 deserted before the end of their term. Next, Rob Coughlin asks, the First Italian Campaign is rightly lauded for Napoleon's strategic and grand tactical brilliance. What are your thoughts on the role of tactics in this campaign? I'm glad someone asked this question, because this is a subject I wanted to tackle in episode 34, but I couldn't find a good way to shoehorn it in. If we're looking at tactics, the archetypal battle of the French Republican Army during the War of the First Coalition looked something like this. First, the artillery opened up, directing their fire on the enemy's cannon, hoping to knock as many of them as possible out of action before the battle began in earnest. Then they would switch targets to the enemy infantry to soften them up for an attack. Next, the French light infantry deployed in a loose skirmish formation. Theoretically, there was a method to this madness, but with the poor training and discipline of the Republican troops, it's often described more like a swarm or a cloud. This cloud would get close enough to the enemy to snipe and probe for weak points. The armies of the old regime were not very maneuverable in their rigid line formations, and if they moved to attack or return fire, the swarm would melt away, out of reach. Once the artillery and skirmishers had softened the enemy up, the main event began. Republican armies attacked in massive assault columns, often singing or chanting as they stormed forward. Military theorists of the time described these columns as operating according to the laws of motion, using mass and momentum to shift the enemy, literally smashing through the lines like a battering ram. Once the enemy was broken, the Republican commander would unleash his cavalry to inflict as many casualties as possible in pursuit. This style of battle played to the strengths and compensated for the weaknesses of the Republican troops. Most armies of the day fought in line formations, 
which were notoriously difficult to maintain on the battlefield without extensive training and rigid discipline. Many of the poorly trained units of patriotic volunteers in the French army simply weren't up to the task. Skirmisher hordes and assault columns were much easier for novice soldiers to master. These aggressive tactics and mob formations turned a battle into more of a contest of wills and morale than of skill or arms. The high morale and will to win among the Republican troops gave them an advantage in this style of battle. Basically, any book about the wars of the Revolution will give you some version of that narrative I just laid out. Ask any armchair general what they know about the tactics of the French Revolutionary armies, and you'll probably hear some or all of those elements. That model is a useful way to think about the tactics of the revolutionary armies in general, but it's really more of a thought exercise invented by historians than a template that was actually used in real life. When you actually look in detail at the battles of this period, you don't actually find very many battles that resemble this archetype. This was especially true by the time of the First Italian Campaign. By 1796, the French didn't really have the same limitations. When Napoleon took command of the Army of Italy, most of his soldiers had been in the army for years, and they'd learned on the job. Not only were they capable of fighting in line formation, we have examples of them pulling off very advanced maneuvers, like feigned retreats, ambushes, and time-synchronized attacks. Much more complicated stuff than fighting in a line. French armies still favored the offensive. Daring assaults in column formation fueled by the high morale of the Republican troops remained a signature tactic of French armies, right up until Waterloo. But by the time of the First Italian Campaign, they had the experience to be flexible and use other tactics when the situation called for it. Not only could Napoleon's men fight in a more traditional line formation if the situation called for it, their Austrian opponents were just as capable of using French-style tactics. Habsburg military doctrine of this period took a dim view of the column formation, but they used it on occasion. The Austrians also had large units of dedicated light infantry who were capable of deploying into a skirmish formation en masse, not unlike the swarms of light infantry we associate with the Republican armies. These units were called Grenzers. They were recruited from the Balkans, where they learned to fight a kind of proto-guerrilla warfare in Austria's never-ending struggles with the Ottoman Empire. The Grenzers were notorious for their unruliness and poor discipline, but they were some of the most tenacious, fearsome fighters in the Austrian military. In short, the Grenzers fought a bit like the Republicans. Napoleon considered them the best Austrian troops. My point is, the opposing armies in the First Italian Campaign were not as tactically different as they're sometimes portrayed. The French tended to favor mass skirmishers and the assault column, and the Austrians tended to favor the defensive line and traditional volley fire, but these were preferences, not ironclad differences. In my opinion, the true significant differences between the Army of Italy and their opponents were on the strategic level, not in the realm of tactics. It's a cliché, but most battles really are won or lost before the first shot is fired. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. 
With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Shifting gears a bit, Michael Gutierrez asked, Do you think you'll ever do a show where you take a look at the books and movies about the period to assess what they get right or wrong? Sharps Rifles, Master and Commander, etc. Well, how about this show? It's about time I came clean. As a teenager, I was an absolute fanatic for the Sharp novels by Bernard Cornwell. I enjoyed the British ITV miniseries starring Sean Bean as well, but the books were a particular obsession. If you're not familiar, the series follows the career of Richard Sharp, a fictional officer in the British Army during the Napoleonic era. Now, before we go any further, I should give my standard caveat about historical fiction. Don't be one of those people who considers him or herself an expert based on things they've picked up from movies or books, or worse, video games. Those media can be great as an introduction, or as a way to maintain your interest or passion for a subject, or even as an adjunct to more serious nonfiction. But if, faced with the choice between informing and entertaining, novelists, filmmakers, and video game designers generally opt to entertain. That's why they're in the entertainment business, not historians, right? With that said, I've always found good historical fiction to be a great way to explore the mood or feel of a particular time and place, which I think can be hard to get across in nonfiction. Following the experience of a fictional character can sometimes connect us to a big historical event or wider trend on a gut level in a way no amount of scholarly information can. So whatever type of historical fiction you engage with, I'd always encourage you to look for that type of connection, rather than expecting to learn hard facts. That's why I can still appreciate the sharp books I loved when I was 14. Cornwell does a great job of tapping into a lot of the bigger themes we've talked about on this show. The Richard Sharp character is a light infantryman, so he's right on the cutting edge of this new style of warfare of the Napoleonic era and is constantly getting into conflict with more old-fashioned officers. He's also a commoner, born in the slums, and promoted from the ranks based on merit, which brings him into conflict with traditionally-minded officers who believe in an aristocratic army. These themes of a new kind of warfare and a new kind of soldier are probably familiar to you by now. I think the Sharp books give you a fun way to imagine what these real historical trends might have felt like for the men who lived through them. The series is relatively accurate on the smaller details, too. Bernard Cornwell is a very solid researcher for a novelist, and incorporates a lot of scholarly work and primary sources into his novels. If you know the series well, you might remember a minor character named Rifleman Harris. He's named after Benjamin Randall Harris, who was a real soldier in the 95th Rifles during the Peninsular War. He wrote an autobiography called The Recollections of Rifleman Harris, which is possibly the best memoir of the Napoleonic Wars written by a British soldier, and is the source for a lot of the details of daily life in the Sharp series. 
Again, I would advise against extrapolating too much about the real history of the riflemen in the Peninsular War from a novel, but the overall impression is relatively accurate. The main inaccuracy I point to in the books is just how exciting and unusual Sharp's career is. He's constantly going on a secret mission for the Duke of Wellington, or making a rendezvous with Spanish guerrillas behind enemy lines, or chasing down a French spy. Now, those types of things did happen, and as an officer with a fearsome reputation in an elite light infantry unit, a man like Richard Sharp probably would have been more likely than most to be involved in these types of adventures. But there are like 40 of these books. I don't know of any officer in the Napoleonic Wars whose entire career was just an unbroken succession of Pulp Fiction stories. We never get a whole volume of Sharp laid up in the hospital with dysentery, or leading his unit on a boring reconnaissance mission while the rest of the army fights the climactic battle a hundred miles away. He's always at the center of the action, and usually playing a pivotal role. I also don't really care for the depiction of the French particularly in the TV series, where they're mostly just two-dimensional, mustache-twirling bad guys. It's a bit weird to do a whole series exploring this transition to a new type of warfare, and gloss over the experience of the side who actually pioneered those changes. We certainly don't get much of a sense of what the French and their allies were fighting for, beyond Napoleon. Maybe that's too much to expect from adventure fiction, but it's always bugged me. It pains me to say it, but I also think Cornwell is a bit unfair to the British Officer Corps as well. Merit-based promotion, like Sharp's, was nowhere near as unusual or stigmatized as Cornwell implies. As a commoner promoted from the ranks, Sharp generally gets treated like a space alien by his fellow officers. But by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, most British units had at least a few officers who started in the ranks. Of course, such men did face an uphill climb, and in a class-obsessed society like 18th century Britain, I'm sure they faced prejudice. But there were a lot more of them than you might think from reading the Sharp novels. There's a real snobs versus slobs dynamic in the Sharp universe. Officers tend to be either grizzled professionals who rose on their own merits, or arrogant, effete rich boys with noble titles who bought their way in. From what I've seen, there were a lot more British officers in between these two extremes than the novels imply. That's understandable, Cornwell's trying to highlight this conflict between the old and the new, between two different visions of soldiering. It muddles the picture if you include too many people who don't quite belong on either side of the divide. So, to sum up, the Sharp novels are surprisingly accurate for adventure novels. Bernard Cornwell found a way to write gripping adventure stories that somehow never deviate too far from a plausible historical setting. It's been a while since I watched the movies, but from what I recall, they are a bit less consistently accurate. I'll say a lot less about the Aubrey Maturin series and the film Master and Commander, because I don't know the material nearly as well, and my knowledge of naval matters is much more limited. If you're not familiar, we're talking about a series of novels by Patrick O'Brien, following the fictional Royal Navy Captain Jack Aubrey and his friend and chief surgeon, Dr. Stephen Maturin, through the Napoleonic Wars. The books were adapted into a film called Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, starring Russell Crowe as Aubrey and Paul Bettany as Maturin. 
I've only read one of the books in the series, and to be honest, I didn't care for it. I picked it up when I was about 16 and waiting for a new Sharp book to come out. I was expecting something in that same vein, but the Aubrey Maturin books are much more slowly paced and more cerebral. I've heard they're actually very good. I keep meaning to give them another try now that I'm an adult and looking for more than just blood and gunpowder in my novels. But lately, I find it hard to read fiction set in the Napoleonic Wars. I read novels to unwind, and for reasons you might understand, Napoleonic fiction kind of feels like work to me these days. I really enjoyed the film version, Master and Commander. Some people said gruff Australian Russell Crowe was miscast as a violin-playing British officer in a tailcoat, but I thought he was great. Royal Navy officers tended to be less aristocratic than army officers. And I assure you, most Napoleonic-era Royal Navy officers were tough customers, even if they read books and played the violin. I think what I enjoyed most about the movie was the dialogue. Aside from a few little mistakes, the characters actually sounded more or less like 18th century people. Within the limits of Hollywood, of course. That's pretty rare in fiction. They also went to a lot of effort to get the look right. Much of the movie was actually filmed on a real wooden sailing ship. Apparently, it was ungodly expensive, but it shows. I haven't seen the movie for years, but the only mistake I can clearly recall is a character saying the word okay, which is a pet peeve of mine. Okay almost certainly hadn't been coined yet, and it definitely wasn't being used outside the United States until much later. I'm sure some Royal Navy nerds out there have found errors in the uniforms or lapses in regulation, but the broad strokes of the film seem pretty accurate. It helped me imagine what it might be like to live through things I've read about but can never experience. And that's what I look for in historical fiction. Next, a few different listeners asked about ethnic or national identity, so I picked one question to kind of represent the whole batch. Matthew asked, Were any regional or minority identities apart from Corsican important in France during the Revolutionary Period? For example, did a separate Breton identity factor into the Vendée uprising? Believe it or not, this is still a very controversial issue. The official position of almost every French government since the Revolution has been that all Frenchmen are Frenchmen, with no distinction of ethnic or regional identity recognized. The French national census is actually legally barred from asking questions about ethnicity. The matter of subnational identities is part of a larger tension between center and periphery, which is one of the central issues of French history, since way before Napoleon and continuing to the present day. That means there are about a million schools of thought on this topic. I'll do my best to untangle them and tell you what I think. This much is pretty much incontrovertibly true. Until after the First World War, what we know as French was not the dialect most people in France spoke with their family and close friends. It was a formal language they learned at school and in the army, and might use to read a newspaper or when dealing with the government. Along with that language difference, people had their own local customs and traditions. The further you got from Paris, and the less plugged in people were to the national economy and communications networks, the more those local ways of doing things tended to differ from the way they did things in Paris, which is to say the stereotypically French way. So France was a pretty diverse place full of people who probably wouldn't fit your stereotypical vision of a Frenchman. 
One way to look at French history since the Revolution is that the centralizing Parisians took these people who didn't fit that stereotypical vision and stripped them of their identities, imposing a cultural uniformity that fit with their ideas about a centralized state. This is a very popular argument, particularly among conservative critics of the Republic. Some have even compared this process to colonialism. From what I see, the picture is much more complicated than that narrative. Today, we generally assume someone who has a different language and culture from the dominant national culture and language must be a member of an ethnic or national minority group. But that assumption doesn't always hold true, particularly when we look into the distant past, and particularly in France. We live in a world dominated by a long-established, strictly defined national identity. Early modern Europe was not like that. Most people didn't think much about what ethnic group or nation they belonged to. Many didn't even understand the concept. People in Brittany, to take your example, were certainly aware that they were different from people in Paris. Their language was Celtic, not Romance. They ate different food, wore different clothes, and had different customs. But that doesn't necessarily mean they had any national consciousness, which is to say, they might not have thought of themselves as part of some category called Breton that encompassed hundreds of thousands of people with certain language and customs in common, and that this category called Breton was totally distinct and incompatible with a different category of people called Frenchmen. That's national consciousness. To a lot of early modern people, the whole world outside of their little community was made up of foreigners. Some foreigners might have been stranger than others, but that didn't necessarily translate into some sense of national or ethnic community. The cultural and linguistic differences between Paris and the periphery could contribute to conflict, in the same way that cultural and linguistic differences can always exacerbate divisions. But all throughout French history, millions of people have found no contradiction in being a loyal Frenchman and even a good Republican while speaking their local dialect at home and celebrating their local traditions. The historian John Merriman tells a great anecdote from the 19th century about striking factory workers in southern France shouting Republican slogans in their local language, Occitan, at their presumably francophone managers. That scene doesn't really make sense if you buy into the narrative of left-wing Republican French Paris imposing itself on local identities. So, to sum up, there was a tremendous amount of difference and diversity within France during this period. But national identities were still weak and shifting. That includes both the national French identity and regional and minority ethnic identities. It's important to keep that difference and diversity in mind, but we shouldn't overestimate it, and we should be careful not to project our modern notions of national identity onto the past. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Next question. A few different people asked about Napoleon's spiritual and superstitious beliefs. 
If you could ask Napoleon whether or not he was religious or superstitious, he certainly would have said no, and he might have laughed. He was a man of the Enlightenment, and liked to think of himself as motivated by higher sentiments, chiefly reason. And as compared to most people in 18th century Europe, that was pretty accurate. This was an age in which most people were intensely religious, and believed their daily lives were shaped by the supernatural, both in the form of official Christianity and in the form of less official beliefs about luck and fortune and magic and witches. However, Napoleon was not an atheist, and he had his own idiosyncratic superstitions. Bonaparte believed in God, but he was a free thinker by nature and not really cut out for traditional piety. His personal outlook was closer to Enlightenment deism than official Catholicism. He believed there was a divine plan for the universe, but considered God mostly unknowable and all religions to be man-made institutions. He only really had two strong beliefs about religion. The first was that people should be free to practice as they saw fit. He saw faith as a matter of personal conscience. He did not believe religious practice could or should be regulated and didn't think a person's faith necessarily reflected their broader character, which is a surprisingly modern point of view. The second closely held belief about religion was that he detested fanaticism. Quote, There is no place in a fanatic's head where reason can enter. End quote. For Napoleon, calling someone incapable of reason was about the worst thing you could say. Napoleon clearly had little personal inclination towards spiritual matters. But he did consider religion valuable because it taught people moral lessons, gave them a sense of purpose and duty, and fostered social harmony. It was a pragmatic, you might even say coldly practical, view of religious faith. Napoleon tended to judge religious institutions solely on how useful they were to the government and society. In private, he quite candidly admitted that he practiced Catholicism because he governed a nation of Catholics, and would just as happily embrace Islam or Judaism if he governed a nation of Muslims or Jews. His main complaint with Catholicism had nothing to do with practice or doctrine. He objected to the fact that the clergy owed their allegiance to a foreign institution, the Vatican. He considered this a recipe for civil discord, and an unnecessary complication to governing Catholic lands. Privately, Napoleon actually considered Islam the superior system for ruling a country and maintaining domestic tranquility, and greatly admired the Prophet Muhammad. But we'll get into that more in the near future, when our story moves to Egypt. Like many people, Napoleon's opinion of religion softened as he aged. In his youth, he was a Jacobin. He was never among the most anti-religious of that faction, but his early writings and statements are full of criticism of the church and its role in society. But he made his peace with the church for political reasons. By his mid-forties, he had a Catholic chaplain as part of his small entourage on St. Helena, and he attended Mass, even though he no longer ruled over a nation of Catholics. In 1821, Napoleon received last rites and died a Catholic. I have a whole episode planned on Napoleon's policies towards religion after he takes power, so I won't get too far ahead of myself on his public stances toward religion, but hopefully that takes care of his personal beliefs. As to superstition, like I said, Napoleon probably would have scoffed at the idea, but there's plenty of evidence he was superstitious. 
Remember, in the 18th century, faith in the supernatural was so deep and widespread that a man who was a coldly rational skeptic by their standards looks like some kind of New Age mystic to modern eyes. You'll often see Napoleon called a gambler. I've done it on this show, and I'm far from the first. Even in his own time, people were already making that comparison. That seems to have been true in his spiritual life as well as his public career. He didn't go in for religion, but he had a lot of the kind of little superstitions gamblers often indulge. Napoleon had a lot of complicated beliefs about luck. Certain numbers and dates were lucky or unlucky. Certain events could be interpreted as good or ill omens. According to some sources, there was a particular star in the night sky Napoleon considered his star, which always brought him luck. He also believed his fallen comrades watched over him from the afterlife, though what kind of afterlife he believed in was unclear. There's no doubt Napoleon had these superstitions, but sometimes people overinterpret phrases in his writing and find evidence of superstition where it doesn't exist. For instance, if Napoleon learned of a French defeat and called it an ill omen, I don't think that necessarily indicates that he believed his cosmic fortunes had changed. More likely, it's just a turn of phrase, indicating he considered it a setback for the French cause. There's also the question of the so-called Little Red Man, which supposedly is an old legend of a spirit that haunted the rulers of France through the ages, occasionally intervening at historic turning points. According to some sources, Napoleon not only believed the legend, but claimed to have seen the Little Red Man and accepted his guidance. None of the sources making these claims are particularly credible, and I don't consider them reliable. Purely on a gut level, we know Napoleon was susceptible to certain types of superstitious thinking, but does believing in an old folk tale fervently enough to actually have a vision sound like him? Anything is possible, but I'm skeptical. I also suspect this story was originally spread with an ulterior motive. The concept of a supernatural spirit that counsels the powerful and appears in the form of a little red man is suspiciously close to the popular Western image of Satan. The people who originally spread this story might have been opponents of Napoleon, hoping their audience would make the same connection, and conclude Bonaparte was under satanic influence. So, to sum up, Napoleon was ambivalent about religion, and had a lot of gamblers' superstitions about luck and fate. Next up, Tyler Smith asks, Excise Napoleon from history. Do we ever get a united Italian peninsula? Hypotheticals are tough, particularly ones with such huge and far-reaching consequences, like trying to imagine a 19th century without Napoleon. It's impossible to say with any certainty how the French Revolution and the War of the First Coalition would have played out without Napoleon, which means it's also impossible to say what the geopolitical or even intellectual landscape of Europe would have looked like during the 19th century. That's why a lot of academic historians outright refuse to entertain hypotheticals. But I'm not an academic historian, and that answer isn't very much fun, so let's speculate. I imagine the Republicans still would have invaded Italy without Napoleon, but probably would not have enjoyed as much success or advanced as rapidly. André Massena is a possible alternate commander for the Army of Italy, or maybe Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte would have taken Napoleon's role in the Vendémiaire uprising and used his influence to get the command, just like Napoleon did. 
Whoever it was, they also would have collaborated with the Italian patriots, and the French invasion would have filled Italian radicals with hope, just as it did under Napoleon. But I'm not sure Massena or Bernadotte would have been successful enough to declare a new sister republic, as Napoleon did. If they were, I don't think Massena was ambitious enough to defy Paris. Bernadotte was, but I doubt he had the political or diplomatic skills to make it happen. Without the Cisalpine Republic and the Italian patriots actually taking the reins of government in northern Italy, far fewer of them would have been bold enough to start writing and talking about a united Italy. The legacy of the patriots would have been much less pronounced. Rather than becoming the forebearers of Italian nationalism, they might have been forgotten. It's certainly possible Italy never would have united without Napoleon. For that matter, Germany might not have either. Nationalism as we know it largely came about as a political and intellectual response to Napoleon. Without the Napoleonic Wars and the period of French hegemony over Europe, ethnic and national consciousness might have been too weak to pull off these projects of national unification, or nationalism could have evolved in a different direction. It's also possible Italy could have been unified, but in a different form. As students of Italian history know, one of the main driving forces of the Risorgimento was the ambition of the Savoy dynasty, the ruling house of Piedmont and Sardinia, who eventually became kings of Italy. Those dreams of Savoy territorial expansion predate Napoleon. In our world, the House of Savoy formed an uneasy alliance with liberal nationalists like Garibaldi and Mazzini, the intellectual and political successors of the Patriots. That alliance eventually succeeded in putting Victor Emmanuel II of Savoy on the throne of a united Italy that embodied many, but not all, of the constitutional, secular, and centralizing ideas first espoused by the Patriots. Without the legacy of the Cisalpine Republic, the Patriots would have had less of a legacy, and liberal nationalism would have been a much weaker force in Italy. Perhaps the Savoy dynasty never would have felt the need to make that fateful alliance with the Garibaldis and Mazzinis of the world, and pursued Italian unification alone, under their own terms. If they'd succeeded, the Italy they created would likely have been very different. Without the anti-clerical influences of the liberal nationalists, the Catholic Church would have likely played a large official role in the government and administration of the country. Even with the centralizing and anti-aristocratic influences of the liberal nationalists in our universe, the Italian government was notoriously weak. Even today, local and regional authorities in Italy are often more powerful than the central government. That trend would be even stronger without the influence of the patriots. An Italian state in a universe without Napoleon would probably look more like a loose federation than a unified nation-state. Real power would probably rest in the hands of local aristocrats and church officials, rather than the government in Rome. If the House of Savoy couldn't pull off unification, another possibility would be a kind of confederation of the old feudal states of Italy, with the Pope as a figurehead. This idea briefly gained traction in our universe during the 19th century. Maybe it would have had more staying power if it had less competition from an alternative liberal nationalist vision. So, to sum up, without Napoleon's support of the Patriots and the example of a French sister republic, any unified Italian state that came into being in the 19th century would probably have been very decentralized, conservative, far less secular, and, as a consequence, probably worse administered and less dynamic. 
such a state would have played a much smaller role on the world stage. Perhaps it would have even been weak enough to fall under the influence of more powerful neighbors, just as Italy had for centuries. Next, Sam Frido posed another hypothetical. What if Napoleon found himself in a kind of time-travel Freaky Friday situation in which he swapped bodies with his nephew, Louis Napoleon, in 1870, before the start of the Franco-Prussian War? You've already heard all my caveats about hypotheticals. Those all still apply. I'll just jump right in without repeating them. If we're assuming Napoleon in his prime just woke up in the Tuileries Palace the morning war was declared, I don't think the results would have been very different. In fact, he might have actually performed worse than his hapless nephew. The world had completely changed in the seven decades between Napoleon's seizure of power and the Franco-Prussian War. In 1870, warfare was at the beginning of another revolutionary change, not unlike the one Napoleon lived through. One of the main driving factors of this revolution was rapid technological innovation. The railroad and telegraph had completely transformed communications and logistics. Repeating rifles and artillery unleashed a volume of firepower Napoleon never could have imagined. The French army of 1870 even had rudimentary machine guns. The standard French infantry musket of Napoleon's day had an effective range of about 65 meters. The Chasse-Po rifle of his nephew's army could kill from over a thousand meters. The armies of 1870 were much bigger than anything Napoleon was used to. This had to do with a long and complicated list of social and political changes and improvements in administration and logistics. On the eve of the Franco-Prussian War, each army started with roughly a million regulars, a full third bigger than the force Napoleon took into Russia in 1812, and that's before they called up all their reserves and volunteers. Thanks to a whole host of social changes, most importantly the rise of nationalism, more men than ever were willing to volunteer to fight for their country. Looking beyond the military realm, the Industrial Revolution had completely transformed the economy and society. Capitalism and the bourgeoisie had been on the rise since long before Napoleon was born, but their ascendance and the corresponding decline of rural landowners and the aristocracy had accelerated beyond anything Napoleon could have imagined. France was still a nation of peasants, but that too was changing, as common people swarmed into cities and towns. Politics had changed, too. Average people were aware of national affairs and politically mobilized in a way that was unimaginable at the turn of the last century. The Napoleonic-era dichotomy between liberals and reactionaries was far less clear. New strains of liberalism had emerged. Some reactionaries had moderated their hostility to change and embraced mass politics. Left-wing Democrats promised to sweep away the old social order. These new Democrats of the right promised to protect and improve it. This is conservatism as it exists in most Western democracies today. It was invented specifically to co-opt much of what people had found appealing about Napoleonic rule, and it was a force that he hadn't really had to reckon with in his career. Socialism had barely even entered its prehistory in Napoleon's time. In Napoleonic France, the set of ideas and values we'd come to call socialism were just vague notions held by intellectuals on the radical fringe of liberal politics, and unexpressed anger and hope in the hearts of the urban underclass. 
1870, radical thinkers like Karl Marx had synthesized these scattered radical ideas and the growing disaffection with capitalism into coherent schools of thought. Political movements had been built around these philosophies, and already had deep roots in certain segments of the population. Napoleon had never even heard the word socialism, but in 1870, it was one of the most powerful forces on the French political scene. Politics was fractured into different movements, and regular people were enlisted in these movements in a way they never had been during Napoleon's lifetime. Napoleon's success was built largely on his intuitive understanding of the new realities of his rapidly changing world. I think the world of 1870 was too different for that intuitive understanding to hold true. The same instincts that steered him so well at the beginning of the 19th century would have led him into disaster 70 years later. How can you surprise the enemy with a quick forced march when the enemy can redeploy his forces by train? How can you rely on mass infantry assaults and mounted cavalry charges to overpower an enemy that can fire six rounds a minute from hundreds of meters away? How can one man successfully co-opt all political opposition in a country with over 10 million politically active citizens and dozens of organized political factions? I don't think there was any way to simply adapt the political and military strategies of 1800 to the realities of 1870. Europe on the eve of the Franco-Prussian War was just a fundamentally different place in too many ways for the old calculations to hold true. For Napoleon to be successful in such an alien environment, he would have to entirely throw out the old rulebook and come up with entirely new understandings of war and politics. Napoleon was unquestionably brighter than his nephew, and perhaps even with the massive shock of adapting to this radically changed world, he might have avoided making the same mistakes Napoleon III made. But I think the fact that his famous intuition no longer matched up with reality would have led him to make others perhaps with even more catastrophic consequences. One idea I've tried to hammer home in this podcast is the idea that people are largely the product of their influences and environments. Even someone like Napoleon, who was born with tremendous natural abilities, was shaped by his experiences to become the historical figure we know. He wasn't shaped by the world of 1870. If he somehow did have a chance to be shaped by that world, would he even still be Napoleon? Perhaps in the world of the Industrial Revolution, Napoleon would prefer to be a banker or a businessman. Maybe once he cracked a history book and read about the Battle of Waterloo, he'd decide to abandon all worldly achievements and go become a hermit. But now we're getting pretty metaphysical, so I'll stop before this gets truly embarrassing. I think that's a good place to leave things for now. I wish I was able to get to more than a fraction of your questions, but this was a marathon. Thank you again to everyone who submitted something, and sorry if I didn't get to your question. I enjoyed this format, and I'd like to keep doing it, so you will have opportunities to try again. Until next time, thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levisay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.